Hey y'all, and welcome to My Favorite Album. I'm writer and director Jeff Greenstein. In each episode, journalist and filmmaker Jeremy Dillon talks to a different guest about an album they love and how it's influenced and inspired them. However, this is the 250th episode, so we're turning the tables. My guest today is journalist and filmmaker Jeremy Dillon. Prodigiously talented and musically omnivorous, blessed with sartorial flair, a convivial manner, and an envy-inducing Instagram feed, <laughs> Jeremy directed a concert film while still in high school, wrote and directed his first feature at 20, and has spent the past decade amassing an impressive array of writing and directing credits. His acclaimed documentary, Jim Lauderdale, The King of Broken Hearts, will soon be followed by an even more ambitious film about legendary guitarist Tommy Emmanuel. Jeremy Dillon, welcome to my favorite album. G'day, Jeff. I'd just like to point out that I did not write that introduction. <laughs> um, that was incredibly flattering. Thank you. Uh, tell me, Jeremy, what is your favorite album? Well, I'm now going like, to be like one of my guests and do like a mealy mouth qualification <laughs> ahead. of the answer. Um, <laughs> because you suggested that um, this would be a fun idea to sort of flip the script a little bit and me be in the guest chair. And the problem is that most of the albums that have been my favourite have been under discussion on this show already. Can you pick a, just rattle off a couple of those? Uh, Blue by Johnny Mitchell, sure. which has been done about 40 times now. <laughs> and I have now started to put a moratorium on it and tell guests that that's no longer an acceptable choice. Right, okay. Because I'll get letters. Yeah. Revolver by the Beatles. Sure. Those are my two sort of perennial yeah. favourites. And we've covered those, I think. Have more than one person picked Revolver as well? Yes. Although I think Revolver, there's more to talk about. But I think I want to save that, for, okay. you know, like Elvis Costello or something yeah. like that. <laughs> got it, got it. But I am actually, for the purpose of today, I am picking an album that has been my favorite and is definitely one of my favorites, which is another Beatles album, Help. Help, I need somebody. Well, help, or as we semaphore aficionados refer to it, Nujiv, <laughs> was released August 6th, 1965 in the UK. August 13th, 1965 in the US. This album is twice your age and nearly as old as I am. How did you first encounter it? Um, it was one of the first Beatles records that I bought, which means it was one of the first records that I bought. I got into the Beatles when I was 11 years old and they were really my first kind of musical obsession. Yeah. Like up until that point, music, I listened to music, I liked music, but music was more about something that was fun to do. Like yeah. I, I played a little bit of piano and a bit of drums and, okay. and I really enjoyed music on that level as much as anything else but then when I happened onto the Beatles when I was 11 it really was the first yeah I was going to ask you this because you are a little some of your origins are cloaked in mystery so I was wondering did you grow up in a musical household what kind of music did your parents listen to it was a lot of country music oh, no I would kidding. say that was the most prevalent kind of music that was being played American around country house. music American and Australian. Okay. Give uh, me some examples, because I don't really know. Uh, Alan Jackson. Yeah. Uh, Garth Brooks. Uh, Trisha Yearwood. Okay. 
Lee Kernigan, uh, Shanley Dell. I okay. You're now way off the map of what I would recognize. I'm getting into the Australians. Okay, and this is what your parents like to listen to. Yeah, I mean that was what that was the stuff that I remember being played, and I'm really grateful for that because if you grow up in the big city in Australia, you can end up with real prejudice against country music. Yeah, having never really heard it, but because I was exposed to it young, I just got to hear it as music and right um, develop a taste for that amongst all the other stuff. And then what about the popular music of the time when you were, you know, when you were in junior high and high school and so forth? Did did you cross paths with that stuff? Was there stuff that you glommed onto? Not really. I was very, at first I was just ignorant of it. And then I went through sort of a phase for most of my teenage years of being a complete wanker and very, (laughs) very dismissive of anything mainstream. Give me an example of something you were dismissive of. Britney Spears, okay. for example, or Kylie Minogue, or right. stuff which I now go, even if, like the Britney Spears stuff, I still don't listen to those records, but I love a lot of those songs Yeah, that I think are amazing. Or even just like, you know, some, a lot of contemporary rock music or, right. or indie or, or alternative music. Just, I can now look back at that period and go like, there was a lot of great records yeah. that came out then, or a lot of great songs being written, and I was being... I was basically inhabiting the personality of like a um, stuck-in-his-ways 58-year-old. <laughs> but so what, did you find, were you musically curious? Like how did you find like what we would now refer to as classic rock, like the Beatles, the Stones, the Who? How did, how did you find those records? Well, everything kind of stems from the Beatles, and the Beatles was pretty much an, an accidental encounter, at least for me. Um, my parents went to a stage show about the life of John Lennon and took me along. And I'm sure I must have heard some Beatles music before that. I was definitely, I remember thinking of John Lennon at the time as being that guy from that Beatles band. Right. How old are you at this point? I'm 10. Okay. Yeah. So I didn't really know anything about the Beatles or about Lennon, but I must have heard some of the songs. But that was the first conscious time I would listen to the music. And I... I've got, kind of got a theory that because I was hearing those songs in the context of a narrative, yeah, that I was more open to really That's hearing them and listening yeah. to them. And just pretty immediately, I became a massive Beatles fan and like cajoled my parents into buying me Beatles albums. And then I started to save up my pocket money and I bought, I think, Rubber Soul yeah. first and then Help after that. How did you know which record to buy first? I think it was just... Based on what was on the track, what songs list. you knew? Yeah, it was like Rubber Soul would have been because it had Norwegian wood on it. Yeah, which was one of the Beatles songs that I got into initially, and yeah, and then Help would have been for You've Got to Hide Your Love Away. Sure, was uh, that the song that made you buy the record? Yeah, I think so. But I was just I was working my way through yeah through all of them. So were the Beatles the first sort of classic band that you became fixated on? The first band that you wanted your, that you clamored for your parents to buy the records by? Totally, really. And then I was basically buying or getting my parents to buy. Um, it was Beatles albums and James Bond soundtrack albums. <laughs> <laughs> and then after I got really into the Beatles, I started to become curious about like, well. Like what was influencing them, so yeah. I went back to like Chuck Berry and Little Richard and Sinatra and Great American Songbook stuff, and then I sort of went sideways to the Stones and the Who and the Kinks and right. all the other '60s bands, 
and then I started to get into the Beatles solo stuff and the other stuff of the 70s and like 80s so like you know Bowie and Elvis Costello right. and, and people of, of that ilk. So the Beatles were the passport to everything else it sounds like. Totally. What about the solo stuff? Did you follow them into their solo careers? Yeah definitely. Um, I think it would have been it would have been Lennon initially. That is that who you felt the most affinity for when you first encountered the band? I think so because of the way I'd entered yeah. the band even though McCartney is probably the one I've feel the most affinity for yeah. nowadays. But yeah, at the time, I definitely, I loved Lennon. He was probably behind the majority of the songs that I felt most strongly about in the Beatles catalogue at that point. Yeah. And also, I would, I'd pretty much bought wholesale into like the myth of... Yeah. Of, of was he still alive at this point? Or no, was no, he, no. he was already gone? No, he would have, this was about 19 years after wow, he was killed. something. Wow. Okay, so it's funny because, like, my experience with the Beatles, I was very, very young when they broke up. Um, I, had, yeah. I had no awareness of them as, as something that was happening contemporaneous to me. So in a lot of ways, I identify with the idea that the Beatles were in the, or something from the rearview mirror, something from the past that you were discovering. I think there's actually a really good thing about that in terms of a band to get into because the catalogue is not so intimidating in its right. size. Yeah. It's not like... The Stones, where you're going, shit, there's 50 years yeah. of albums here. Where do I start? Which ones do I buy? Which ones should I avoid? Because there's some bands where they've got 40 albums and you pick the wrong two or three to start off with. And you go, oh, God, everyone told me this band was great, but these yeah. records stink. Right. Whereas that's not going to happen with no, the Beatles. No, that's right. That's right. I want to just, just detour back to something that you said in passing. Did you play instruments growing up? You yeah. said piano, right? Anything else? I started learning on the piano and I never, I was never conscientious enough with it to get good. Yeah. Um, and then I started playing the drums when I was eight or nine and I stuck with that basically um, through to high school. But then after high school, I moved into a like a, a townhouse and couldn't have a drum kit anymore. Okay. So did you ever try and play these songs yourself? Did you ever? Like, oh yeah, that yeah? was like my whole like drumming not well career is the wrong word, but my whole tenure playing the drums was basically like turning up the White Album really loud and playing yeah. along with all of Ringo's parts. think that your interest in music as a documentarian, as a journalist and so forth, is born of a frustrated desire to be one? Yeah. Go into that a little more if you would. Are you a frustrated rock star? Yeah. yeah. Which I don't think is uncommon. I, I think a lot of people in the arts who aren't musicians... I don't, I don't know anyone who could be a rock star who's choosing not to be. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know anyone who can right. like pay, play guitar like Pete Townsend, but instead is like a journalist, right? Or it's someone who could you know sing like John Lennon, but instead is a film producer, right? Like I think if you can do that, yeah, that's the most like just viscerally, elementally satisfying thing you can do. So when was the point when you realized I'm not going to be Keith Moon? I'm not going to be 
Pete Townsend, and you decided that, that being an appreciator of music was going to be more important to you than being a musician. I can't put a finger on that, actually. I don't remember a time when I wasn't yeah. aware of that. I think pretty quickly I was conscious that the best drummer I was ever going to be was not going to be anything incredible. Right. Were you ever in a band? No. That's, see, isn't that part of it? Like, if you had had three mates that were, that you played with, it might have been a different story. That's My true. son is a drummer, and I feel like, like if he ever had the opportunity to be in a band, it would ratchet things way up. Because he's very good. But it is a little bit about, like, finding some like-minded hooligans to play with. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, like, you know, the Beatles are no exception. A lot of great bands just started out as, like, they wanted to be in a gang, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And they also happened to play instruments. Did your peers share your musical taste at all? Did you have anybody your age who you could swap records with? Or were they all listening to Britney Spears and Kylie Minogue? Well, I went to an all-boys school, so oh, okay. not so, so much what Britney were they and Kylie. To? What, were they, what were your peers listening to when you were digging out help? Um, probably, like, some of them were into, like, Dream Theater, and some of them were into Korn, and some of yeah. them into, were into just, like, whatever the big indie bands of the mid-2000s yeah. were, which I'm now having trouble placing yeah, we all are. mentally. <laughs> um, I guess Radiohead would have been yeah. big. Like, U2? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah okay. still U2. Yeah. Green Day. Yeah. Um, stuff like that. But I did. there was a, I don't know, maybe like a half dozen kids I knew who were into, let's say, classic rock like Beatles to an extent, but probably more like Led Zeppelin and, yeah. and Cream and stuff like that. Yeah. Stuff that had a little more, not cock rock. But I know, I get it. Yeah. I get it. It's cooler to like Led Zeppelin than it is to like the Beatles. Yeah. Uh, so I completely get that. I mean, I my peers listened to Zeppelin and Leonard Skinner and Allman Brothers, and it was, it was you know, when I, the fact that I like talking heads <laughs> yeah. branded me as a very, very uncool person at the time. Although that's very cool now. Very cool now. Yeah. Not cool. Not cool in the South in, uh, in the 1980s. Here I stand, head in hand, turn my face to the wall. If she's gone, I can't go on. Feeling two foot small Everywhere people stare Each and every day I can see them laugh at me And I hear them sing Hey, you've got to hide your so when you bought the record Help, was it a CD or a vinyl album? A CD. CD. Yeah. So tearing the shrink wrap off, you had a couple of songs that you knew. Did you listen to it straight through or did you skip around and pick your favorite tracks? God, this is really testing my memory. I probably would have listened to it. I pro no, I, what I probably would have done first is gone to the song I knew yeah. to hear what the original version sounded like. Because I don't know if I would have oh, heard. got it the original recording of um, You've Got to Hide Your Love Away before this record. So I probably went to that and yeah. then went, oh, that's a bit different. That's interesting. Yeah. That's a flute solo on this track. Right. And then I would have like run it through. In now, sequence. had you seen the movie? Did you know it was a movie soundtrack? No, I did not. I was. It would have been <laughs> probably like my 
15, probably yeah. 15, 16 before I saw A Hard Day's Night and Help because they weren't easy to get a hold of. No, they of. weren't for the longest time. I yeah. remember when Hard Day's Night was re-released in the 80s because it had been out of commission for a really long time. And Help, I guess, didn't get a proper home video release until Anthology, right around that time, I think. Yeah, and then the DVD, there was a DVD reissue of A Hard Day's Night some point when I was in high school. I remember that coming out. Yeah. And then Help, like later maybe even later than that because i remember there yeah. was like a big dvd package with right. like a martin scorsese introduction yeah yeah that might have even been like more recent like 2009 or 10 right or like hey that. so just real quick though when you finally saw the movie with all the songs in it that you loved what how did it affect you did you like it did it make sense i couldn't make sense of the movie by the way oh i love the movie really yeah it may like the influence of it is actually really interesting tell me well, because I, I think the those two films in different ways, like because Richard Lester directed both of them, yeah, and especially something like like the Austin Powers films, for sure, example, definitely that those don't exist without help. Definitely true. I agree with that. And yeah, that jump cut style. I was reminded of the monkeys. It reminded yeah. me a lot of like it felt very much like even more than Hard Day's Night. It feels like Help is the precursor to the Monkeys series. Totally. I couldn't follow the story. I found myself. Keeping continually skipping ahead to the musical numbers, right? Because I find the film like really entertaining just as a film. Yeah, and I think it's what they did with how they used the Beatles within it, and sort of I imagine it would have there must have been something really hip about it at the time. The sort of the way, like even the tone of the way they speak. Yeah. And how sort of dry yeah. and straight it is yeah. through most of the film with this really like sort of kooky um, like adventure story going on around them. Yeah. When they're it's when most of their dialogue is like sort of dry yeah. and um it's, Yeah, it's very deadpan. I mean yeah. that's a little bit of how Lester made them movie stars, is it's very, very you know well, it's very British and dry in that way. But deadpan, thrown away, dispassionate, that's part of what makes them funny. Let me ask you this, because I, I, I've never really spoken to an Australian about this. What does British culture look like through an Australian lens? Like, to encounter the Beatles or a Beatles film from the standpoint of a teenager in Australia, what does Britain mean to an Australian kid? Well, I think those are two different questions. Oh, okay. Because I never felt of... The Beatles. I know that's not a real way you put words together. It's okay. I never really felt of the Beatles as being British. I, oh, okay. I knew they were from Liverpool. Yeah. I knew they were all English, but I don't think of them as like an English band in the way like the Kinks are an English band because, because they're why? the Beatles. They, oh, okay. They exist so big out of any of the context that they're actually in that it's a separate thing. Like British culture is really commonplace in Australia, even more prevalently when I was growing up than it is now. Because basically, for a long time, we got, you know, American sitcoms, some of which, yeah. like, all the ones that you <laughs> you're involved in. On, yes. And plus, like, I grew up watching, like, Bewitched and I Dream yeah. of Genie and sure. Get Smart. But we also got stacks of British content. So I also grew up watching, like, Blackadder and Mighty yeah. Python's Flying Circus and a bit of Fran Laurie and all that kind of stuff. And so it's because of our connection with Britain, we get a lot of British culture secondhand. So it was it was really common to be aware of and encounter lots of yeah. British culture. 
And is it, I mean, for Americans, I think British culture sort of reeks of being patrician and proper and and highbrow and high-flown and intellectual and lots of things that we aspire to. Is it aspirational for Australians or does it feel like sort of a, a city cousin? I don't know. This is why I'm asking. We don't really do aspirational in Australia. <laughs> Like, aspiring to things is thought of with great skepticism. No kidding. Yeah, it's part of one of the reasons why I just left the country. But um, if you are aiming too high or you think you're going to achieve something big or you believe in something or you believe in yourself, people look askance at you. And there's this thing called the tall poppy syndrome. What's that? Um, It's basically like someone who people are considering has gotten too big for their britches. Oh, so the tall poppy is the first to get cut down? Yeah. Is that the idea? Exactly. So if you've like, you know, it, it's it would be it's quite common for like someone to go to come to Hollywood and then become a big movie star and then like when they're in the early stages of their success, um, the Australian tabloids and stuff will start to go. Who do they think they are? They think oh, they're too good it. for us. Yeah. The interesting thing is once they pass a certain threshold of success, suddenly it's like it's our Nicole or it's our Hugh. Or, <laughs> And it, that kind of goes away. But when you're starting to get successful, people think, like, who do they think they are? Right. Let me go back to something that you said in passing, because because I I certainly understand the attitude that the Beatles are almost like a country unto themselves. They are cosmopolitan or citizens of the world and not just citizens of Great Britain. And I was going to ask this question is, are the Beatles just another rock band or are they something else? And if so, what are they? How did they change the game of what it is to be a rock musician? Well, I think part of it is... You can put the music to one side, which I don't think you should do. And I think something that's really that bothers me about the way people think about the Beatles is that they often just put the music to one side and think of them as like this transformative cultural force. Yeah. But that's also true. Yeah. They're also the haircuts and the fashion and the personalities and the quotes and the films. Yeah. And the influence that they had on... Like, if someone put all the Beatles albums in a vault when they broke up and we were never allowed to listen to them again, they would exist so broadly and deeply in their influence on everyone who's picked up a guitar or written a song or started a band or stepped in front of a microphone since 1964 in a way that even people who claim that then they never listened to the Beatles, they're not influenced by the Beatles at all, Right. Are 100% completely influenced by the Beatles. Yeah. Well, this is what I wanted to dig into a little bit, because I think I might have mentioned to you when we we talked about doing this interview, the only Beatles records I've ever owned were the Red and Blue albums. And yet you told me you like music. Well, I do like music. I do like music very much. But to me, the Beatles are almost like air. They're everywhere. They're omnipresent. 
there's no debate about their importance. I don't believe people who shit on the Beatles do that because it might be a fashionable thing to do, but you can't. Yeah. They're sort of in a lot of ways beyond criticism. I mean, you can talk in an erudite fashion about how certain lyrical effects are achieved or certain musical effects are achieved, but they are so important and so I mean, as you're saying, they they there are reverberations on everything that follows, whether you like it or not. Um and so, to me, it's almost like, why do you need to own the record? It's everywhere. It exists beyond something that one person could own or possess. Does that make any sense? It does. And yet. And yet, well, <laughs> see, I think that's not an uncommon feeling hmm. to have about the Beatles. And the journey I've sort of gone on with them is to come, coming back to thinking of them primarily as just four guys in a band who made records. Yeah. And wrote, so they, they wrote songs and they hung out and they recorded them and, uh, and then they toured them for a bit and then they stopped doing that. But yeah. then if you, if you think of them primarily as just this icon, this like four-headed icon that changed the world, you lose the personality, I think. And one of the things that I, I love about Help is that it's basically just a record of like really well-written love songs. Yeah. And that's not what the Beatles are primarily thought of as being like guys who like wrote well-written love songs that were personal. Yeah. And that you can relate to, you know, your life and your emotional life. Like this isn't the record that, you know, revolutionized how productions were done in popular music. This isn't the, the record that made people stop thinking of singles and start thinking of albums. This isn't the record yeah. um, that, you know, brought America back to life after the JFK assassination <laughs> or like whichever one of those stories yeah. about the Beatles you're trying to tell, which is right. why the main reason why people write about the Beatles. I think you've got like a story about them that you're trying to yeah. tell. This is just like 14 great tracks that'll make you like a bit happy or a bit sad or help you through something or it's it's a great record of love songs well this is great because you brought me around to the record itself because I, I i do want to talk about why this record kind of gradually bubbled up to the top of your list of favorite albums and even just why it would bubble up to the top of your list of favorite beatles albums you know, I, I have to confess, I don't think I had ever listened to this record straight through. I knew the singles. I mean, it's got Titanic singles on it, some of the best Beatles songs ever recorded. Just the fact that, you know, that um, Help and Ticket to Ride and Yesterday are on the same record is insane. Those are like, one of those songs would be a career maker. And the fact that all three of them are on this record is extraordinary. The other thing that struck me is that when people talk about this record, it seems to get discussed as a transitional album between the sort of Beatlemania style and the art rock, you know, uh, we're going to change the world and change the way in which music is, is uh, you know, appraised in popular culture style of Sgt. Pepper and so forth. Do you see it that way? Or is it just 14 songs? I mean, it's both. You can look at it, I think if you're going to break the Beatles up into eras, the Beatlemania period that starts with the Love Me Do single yeah. and the Please Please Me album, you basically cap that at A Hard Day's Night. That was like the apex of the like grey suits, woo, yeah. like that period. Right. When you got to get to A Hard Day's Night and they're writing all the songs 
and they're doing like the best versions of these kind of songs that they'd started off covering and now you know this is the the Beatles at their best in that form yeah it's like that's the black and white period let's yeah, call it that that's great and then help is the start you could say there's a period that goes from help and finishes a magical mystery tour which is like what if we can do this like every record is yeah. them going a bit like you know, maybe we don't, everything just doesn't have to be, you know, two guitars, bass, drums, and some piano, which was basically the box they were in. And everything yeah. is like a, you know, a, you know, up-tempo love song or a, you know, a Phil Spector style love ballad. And they get, they start, you know, pushing at the edges a bit in, in terms of like the language and then the instrumental color they could put on. And that reaches it apex with Sergeant Pepper and right. then Magical Mystery Tour is sort of Pepper part two, but not yeah. quite as good. And then after that, it's like, we're not really a band anymore. Yeah. And it's the... the White album and yeah. so forth. White album, Abbey Road, you know, yeah. the, the end, of the, end of the band. So I think Help, if you look at... One way to look at it is they could have made this record for the rest of their career. They could have... You know, they couldn't have made A Hard Day's Night for the rest of their career because that was so tied to the sound of the early 60s. Right. Whereas that, like, that was not going... If they'd kept doing that, if they were making A Hard Day's Night in 1969, they would sound so hopelessly out of date at the time that they would have become irrelevant just by dint of still making music that was the popular sound of five years earlier. Whereas... In Help, they sort of cross over into that folkier territory. They start introducing different colours, like the strings on Yesterday and, like, the flute on You've Got to Hide Your Love Away. They could have, you know, done variations on this kind of record for the rest of their career. And, you know, they could have been like the Birds or something. Yeah. And that would have been perfectly reasonable and a lot of other bands would have done something like that. But because they were the Beatles, they kept changing it up. As they went on. Yeah. So is it that quality of artistic restlessness and the dawn of this second era of the Beatles? Is that one of the reasons that this record lands at the top of your list? No. <laughs> okay. I'm just trying to zero in on Yeah, something. no, I don't, I don't think it's that. I think it's the songs. I think it's the songs and the songs um, stand on their feet as songs in a more transparent way than on the later records just because there's less production. Yeah. And you could even say there's less production than the earlier records because there's some songs that are very sparse. Yeah. And are just acoustic guitar based on this record. Something like, you know, I've just seen a face or, right. you know, yesterday, even though it's like got the strings, it's essentially strings and an acoustic guitar. Yeah. This is the most emphasis on the lyric and melody that you'll get pretty much in their catalogue. Yeah. I want to talk about one sort of overall theme to the record before we dig into talking more about the individual songs. Something that struck me listening to this and in contrast to the four albums that preceded it is there seems to be a theme running through this, and it isn't just because the title is Help. There's a theme of vulnerability in this. And and when I read some of the interview excerpts with the band around the time, you know, talking about this record and the time in which these songs were written, it seems to be men who discover they can't quite stand on their own two feet the way that they want to, that maybe they need a girl more than they thought they would, or they're not as strong as they want to be. Does that resonate with you as you think about the songs on the record? Totally. 
And I think this was a big turn. I mean, especially for John Lennon on this record, he'd kind of slipped a bit of introspection in on um, earlier stuff like uh, I'm a Loser on Beatles for Sale. Yeah. But here it was like about as straightforward about it as you can get. Like, I need somebody. Yeah. Like I didn't, when I was younger, so much younger than today, I never needed anyone, anybody's help in any way. It's like this thing of like, we're a little, like we're just getting to the point where we're mature enough to admit that we're in pain and we're hurting and we need help, which, and that is definitely something that um, resonates with me. One thing that really struck me actually on listening to it is uh, The Night Before is practically the same song as Will You Love Me Tomorrow. We said all It's yeah. pretty much the same theme. It's like we had such an amazing time last night, and now in the cold light of day, you don't seem to look at me the same way you did. And that's exactly the theme of Will You Love Me Tomorrow, but you never hear those kind of words in the mouth of a man. Yeah. That kind of vulnerability and need never seems to come from a man. It always seems to come from a woman. And I found that really striking. It's, it's in a lot of ways, they're lyrically quite similar in terms of the sentiment that they're expressing. Although that's kind of a sequel to Will You Still... Because it's like... It's oh, now tomorrow, right. yes, it's and now you don't tomorrow. still love me. <laughs> that's exactly right. Exactly, it is. It's a sequel to Will You Love Me Tomorrow. Yeah. Exactly. Well, let's talk through the tracks a little bit, because cool. as, if it's a collection of songs, let's dig in on the songs. I think that the opening of Help is probably the most arresting opening to a Beatles record there is. Is that true? Can you do better than that? Is Hard Day's Night better? I think Hard Day's Night is really the only challenge, especially that word, arresting. Because yeah. these other great like opening songs. Yeah, like, but in terms of how it invites you in. Yeah. Yeah, talk about that way in which help jumps on you at the beginning of the record. Because, you know, it doesn't in the U.S. release. There's all sorts of bullshit in the U.S. release. Because they have noodly bits of soundtrack. And then yeah. it goes in. But when you drop the needle on track one, it comes right in with the title track and the title word and, a, and an expression of raw need. And I think about that. With records of this vintage, I do think about people buying records and probably never having heard most of the songs on them. Especially in the case of the Beatles where that often the singles that they put out weren't on the records that followed. The singles were like independently released aside from the records. So a lot of people who bought this record would not have heard the song Help. Yeah. Unless they'd seen the movie maybe. Yeah. And so to just put that down and then the first thing is like the four of them yelling help (laughs) at you. Yeah. Like, help, I need somebody, which is, like, not necessarily what you'd be expecting as the opening of the record. Right. And it really, like, sets the the tone. Yeah. And it's pacey, and it grabs you, and it's got that counterpoint, and that, I don't know know musical terms, but it's got that, I want to say ostinato. Should I just say that? Sure, it's a nice word. It sounds like, I mean... In other words, there's this there's this looping bass that moves through it that propels the song forward. It's so exciting. It's always been one of my favorite Beatles songs because of that almost like, you know, that propulsive quality that doesn't let up for the whole song. It doesn't stop for a slow middle eight. It actually goes the whole way. Yeah, it's like an anxiety attack. Yeah. And it does have that great thing, which I've always loved about Beatles songs of this vintage, which is like 
no wasted time. Yeah. As soon as we've finished like one bit, something else is like coming up straight underneath it to offset it before you can get bored. Yeah. And so it's like first it's like you hear help, but it's not you're not just hearing things sung like that. Then there's the response to it, like the John Lennon response to the chorus. Yeah. Vocal. And then you're out of the chorus almost as soon as you're in it. And then there's that doodle little doodle little doodle little yeah. And then that, t- and, and then, yeah. then there's a drum feel, and then you're straight into the verse. And then there's a core response thing in in that as well, and like an answer thing on the backing verse, like like repeating "I never need." Yeah. Like, and the the song's over before yeah, almost as right. soon as it started. I remember when. Um when I bought the first Clash record, one of the ways in which I, because I bought it on import, you know, because I was one of those cool kids who had the <laughs> import copy. And I said, it's got no wimpy fade outs because I, there was so much music on the radio at the time, which would always have some wimpy fade out. And one of the things that I think is so great about this record, no wimpy fade outs. Yeah. Right, it comes to a stop. When we're, when we're done telling our story, we're out and we're on to the next track. Yeah. And that was so disciplined in this part of their career. And I think some of it was that they were still touring, so they were conscious of, like, we could put a fade out on this, but we're going to have to end it somehow when yeah, we play it live. exactly. So we may as well do a complete song which has a structured ending to it. Yeah. So Help is a John song. Is The Night Before a Paul song? It's a story song. And, you know, they stopped doing that primarily after a while, but I think, like, during this period, they were taking after some of those Carole King yeah. um Jerry Goffin songs and they were they were writing songs that were little like love stories or like little conversational love stories like talk like it's a com- you're hearing one side of a conversation between a guy and, and, a, and a woman or between two guys like you know like in You're Gonna Lose That Girl yeah and that kind of it still feels like they're people who have lives. Yeah. At this point, the stuff they're writing about is the kind of thing where it's like conversations you could have imagined these were inspired by stuff that was going on in their lives or friends that they had. And yeah. just like, there was something very still ground level about the experiences inside the lyrics of these songs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's true. They're, they're, I mean, that's one of the, we're going to, when you talk about, um, uh, you're gonna lose that girl. That's that is a, that's. It's very clear the conversation that's going on inside that song. You can totally see those two guys having that conversation. It's like you better shape up. Or I'm gonna take her away from you. Yeah. Um, and there is that kind of you know. Uh, it is more, uh, compelling on those terms because of that. Um, I want to ask you about. Uh, You've got to hide your love away, which is of course the first overtly Dylan-esque yeah. song in the catalog. Jeremy Dillon. This is your given name? Uh, it's, it's technically my middle name. Uh, do you want to give up any of that, or are you as opaque as Robert Zimmerman about... I'm G- Jeremy Dillon Potts is my full name. I just don't use the Potts. When did you decide to be Jeremy Dillon? Um, it's probably like it wasn't that long after I got out of high school. No kidding. I mean, I don't like Jeremy either, but um, <laughs> that's much harder to get people to start calling you a different um, Okay. Name. Were you a Dillon fan? Yeah, were you named for him? I or think it was named for Dylan Thomas, actually. Okay, that's fine. We'll Although take my, my father did tell me that it was Bob Dylan after I became a Dylan fan. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, let's take a little side trip. When did you encounter the music of Bob Dylan? That was one of my offshoots from the Beatles. So that would have been probably like 14, 13, yeah. 14. 
and I came in through the way everyone comes in, which is like the like a Rolling Stone Highway 61 blonde on sure. blonde mid 60s yeah. Dylan period, and then went in either direction. Out of interesting. That. See, that's really interesting. I in thinking about this record and the kind of artistic transition that it represents, I was thinking about it as roughly akin to the point that Dylan reached around Highway 61 and Blonde on Blonde where new electric elements start to enter the music and it becomes more experimental in a way, or more inclusive, I guess, in terms of the kind of sounds that it's experimenting with. But it's interesting here to hear the, the you know, uh, John take a page from the Bob Dylan playbook uh, and hey, you got to, hey, you can, I don't know if Dylan ever yeah. covered it, but it does, you can hear it in his voice sometimes in thinking about the song. Yeah, and I, I do think it is uh, to an extent like Dylan giving Lennon permission or Lennon taking permission from hearing Dylan being successful with more impressionistic language. Yeah. And Lennon taking the kind of things that he would write in poems or short stories and go like, well, we can do this in what are songs. Other, you know, what are other examples of that? Like in terms of Dylan's impact, particularly on John Lennon? Partly, I think, like the, the folkier instrumentation yeah. on this record is probably partly a Dylan influence. Um, but I think the, the, yeah, just not having to be as direct um, in the lyrics is probably the biggest impact that he yeah. had on them. And apparently, like, getting them to smoke weed for the yeah. first time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. All right, and then we come to I Need You, which is a George song, right? Yeah. You don't realize how much I need you. Love you all the time and never leave you. Please come on back to me. I'm lonely as can be. I need you. I... Did you identify with George at all? Did you? Anyway. George has never been my favorite Beatle. Yeah. Um, Why is that? Uh, he he always there's something grouchy about George <laughs> for me. I mean, I think he probably had a bit of an inferiority complex about being the third best songwriter in the band. Yeah. Which is tough. Like, imagine being like a really good songwriter. In a band, and like yeah. you can write something as good as, well, eventually as good as something. like something. Yeah. And here comes the sun, but you can't get any of your songs on a record because you're stuck with the two greatest songwriters yeah. in the world, who are dominating the whole yeah. thing. Yeah, and it's got that odd little two-note guitar bit. Well, that's my favorite part of the song. Tell me, the and something about the rhythm to it. It's like it's a little off. Yeah. Yeah. It's. It's something, there is something sweet about the earlier George songs because there's something about him feeling his way around the songwriting process. Yeah. Whereas, like, um, Lennon and McCartney have gotten quite sophisticated right. by this point. It's like George is like the kid brother who's like, oh, I want to do this too. It's like, is, is this, this is sort of what you guys are doing, right? Something like this. And it's like nice and sweet and it's got a good melody. And because of that, the song feels incredibly vulnerable, which yeah. fits with the lyrics. The, yes, exactly. And that, that theme of vulnerability that we were talking about. I think I read somewhere that in order to get that particular kind of in and out sound on that guitar, that John twirled the knob on the... Uh, on, on the, on on the, the volume knob. Yeah, the volume knob, to give it that... You know, that way that which it comes in and out oh, yeah, kind yeah. of 
in a wobbly way. Yeah. It sounds almost unprofessional, which makes it kind of endearing. Yeah. Um, it's, it is interesting because we are here, it is their fifth record, and they've picked up a lot of studio technique, but at the same time, there's something kind of primitive and charming about that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of those things where it's just there wasn't a, an automated way to do that yet. So they just had to come yeah. up with something like that. Yeah. And then there was probably a pedal for it in three months later. Now, speaking of great analog, bongos on You're Gonna Lose That Girl. Yeah. Right? Phenomenal bongos all yeah. over the place. You're gonna lose that girl. Yes, yes, you're gonna lose that girl. You're gonna lose, yes, yes, you're gonna that, lose girl. that girl. If you don't take her out tonight, she's gonna Um, and uh, it's a tremendously propulsive song. It's like it's got a great kind of like staccato chant quality to it. It's one of my favorite songs on the record. Me too. I've always adored this song since the first time I listened to the record. It's got one of my favorite um, Beatles guitar solos, which is the bow now 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 now. Oh yeah 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 yeah. It's just it's one of those great yeah. classic Beatles guitar solos that you can sing. Yeah. And it's got those great sort of country bends in it, and I love like the that answering thing in the chorus. Yeah. Is great. And the the piano in it has, has always uh-huh. been really memorable to me, and I just love the conceit of it, where it's like a, it's almost a similar dynamic that's in She Loves You, sure, where like um, it's John Lennon trying to talk sense into a friend yeah, of that's his. right. It's like that's you idiot, right. like shape up, like you've got this great girl, like why aren't you um, taking get better care of her or, or being more present there? And I I always just I like that. It's just like it's not pitying yeah it's like get your shit together like dude. it is great and it's part of what gives the the song that emphatic quality because it's insistent it's like I, yeah it's like i'm trying to talk some sense to you listen to me yeah. you know and so it makes it gives it an urgency which is just totally compelling and i will take her Well, now we have arrived at one of the, to me, one of the twin towers of this magnificent record, Ticket to Ride. Yeah. It's, I mean, I don't remember where I saw this because I went on the internet and tried to find it. But I do remember a survey of Beatles songs that said this was the greatest Beatles song of all time, Ticket to Ride. That is a pure, like, now I know they did a survey on New York Magazine where they said Day in the Life. But in terms of pure propulsion and just an amazing looping sound, there is nothing like this to me. I remember Echo and the Bunnymen covered it. There's a lot of good covers of Ticket to the Ride, by the way. And Ian uh, McCulloch made a case for this as the greatest Beatles song. He said, just there's no question to him. What do you think? I mean, it's not my favorite Beatles song, but it's as good a choice as... A Day in the Life or Across the Universe or Here, There and Everywhere or like there's so many candidates. Yeah. It's definitely in the, the top echelon and that the thing you just said in the looping quality, which I think mainly comes from Ringo's drums. Yeah. And it's one of Ringo's all-time great no drum performances. Yeah. Where 
the hook it's not even the part it's the way he plays because it, it could just be right but it's right and it's just he's just on the edge he's of when it would still be in it. time yeah yeah and it's just like the feel of that is so hypnotic and combine that with the riff which yeah. is such a simple like I, it's so easy it's yeah. so easy to play and it's such a simple idea and those two things working in concert with each other is just gives this thing such an incredible foundation and then it, the lyric it's another great lyric where the, the thing is the tone is slightly different because it's not just the like ah oh, this woman's done me wrong and left me yeah there's so there's like two interesting things that make it give it a twist the first is like the girl that's driving me mad is going away yeah so it's not like the girl who was who made every light day sunshine is going right. away it's like there's already something wrong yeah. in that dynamic and then the second verse is she said that living with me was bringing her down and she could never be free while I was around. So, like, yeah. he knows that, that it's kind of his fault for, yeah. her, for her leaving. Yeah. You know, the other thing, I read uh, uh, just a piece of an interview with John where he claimed this song was heavy metal. And I can't for the life of me figure out what that means. Well, I think heavy metal is one of those words or, like, musical terms. There's, like, a 20-year period where people just use it to describe like whatever kind of the loudest dynamics okay they'd heard in something yeah recently was in that this is why people say like cream are heavy metal or zeppelin are heavy metal yeah. or whatever like helter skelter sure that, that makes guess. sense yeah but now i think that's now because heavy metal is actually a genre that's codified with like you know, we understand certain things to mean this is a heavy metal recording when back then it was more people who didn't really understand the genre going like, well, this is really aggressive or really loud. So that's what heavy metal is, right? Yeah. It's, uh, I couldn't decode that. Like I said, like when I hear Helter Skelter is the first heavy metal song, that makes sense to me. This, I don't know where the heaviness is other than it, it thumps along. It's insistent, but I don't quite know. I don't know. I couldn't decode that. Now we have arrived at Act Naturally. Now, you know, uh, there's a saying I often quote. I read somewhere that uh, the great Arabic uh, rug makers used to leave a flaw in the rug. Oh, come on. Because only Allah can make something perfect. Do you skip this track? Or Fuck do you- no. What? Defend Afnak naturally to me. Well, first off, I, it's, <laughs> I've always loved the Beatles, the hippest uh, English rock band in the world are covering a Bakersfield country sure. song, a Buck Owens song, Yeah, Buck Owens. Which is just amazing in and of itself. Like, did how you did know they the even... original when you heard this? Well, I'll bet you I'm a gonna be a big star. Might win an Oscar, you can't never tell. The movie's gonna make me a big star. Cause I can play the part so well. Well, I hope you come to see me in the movies. 
No, I wouldn't have. I might have heard some. I might have heard people like okay. play the song as to like a country standard, but I wouldn't have known okay. when I listened to it. This was a Buck Owens song. But even just the fact of that is amazing. Yeah, I think it's a great choice for Ringo because his voice was so suited for definitely for singing um, country songs. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a great song. I love the song. So tell me about Ringo, though. You were a drummer yourself. You've obviously complimented the man's drumming a couple yeah. of times now. What do you? Is he a great drummer? Yeah, he's one of the greatest drummers in pop music history. Why do people take shots at Ringo? I understand why they take shots at the persona, but why do they take shots at the drumming? I think it became received wisdom after a while that Ringo wasn't a great drummer. And I think that was probably largely based on him not being a show-off kind of drummer. Okay. And I love a lot of drummers. Like, we're both huge Keith Moon fans. Yep. Who, like, never met a drum fill he didn't like. Yeah, that's true. And then someone like John Bonham, who is, like, incredibly, like, technically proficient and loud. Yeah. And the, the drums were never mixed that loud on Beatles records, so then the drums are rarely, except on a track like Ticket to Ride, drums are rarely features. Ringo hated drum solos, so he had to be, like, cajoled into taking the quite brief one that's in the song at the end. Yeah. So he never really tried to prove that he was a great drummer. He just came up with all these amazing parts for these great songs. And oftentimes you don't even know he's doing anything out of the ordinary unless you really pay attention. Yeah. Like, I remember when I was trying to, like, work his parts out to play them when I was a kid... And I would just, like, play the song from memory and think it was, like, this pretty straightforward, you know, 4-4 yeah. four, four beat with some fills in it. And then I'd listen back to the record and go, like, hang on. Uh, Wait, no, he's left. He's doing the fill in the opposite direction that most people... He's starting with the floor tom and going in the other way. And he's leaving out... A lot of Ringo's thing is he'll leave out standard things that a lot of drummers would play, especially during a fill. Yeah. And your brain's going, okay, and then he's... Oh, wait, what do you mean he didn't hit? And it just throws you off a little bit. Uh huh. And there's a lot of stuff like that. And his, his feel was great. Yeah. He just had this perfect feel and, like, perfect time. But I think, yeah, a lot of it was that he didn't show off. And he was being compared, especially by drummers, to other drummers who were, like, more pyrotechnical. And also, for a long time, people were listening to... The Beatles albums on Crappy City, yeah, Masters, where you couldn't really hear the drums properly. Yeah. And then when the Beatles Love album came out, the soundtrack for that Cirque du Soleil yes. show, and they'd gone back to the, um, the multi-tracks and remixed those songs, and the, the drums were mixed in a way more modern style, yeah. suddenly you could really hear his parts. Yeah. changed a lot of people's minds and then when the remasters came out in 2009 and you could really hear like all the the crispness of the snares and the kick drum and the right. toms and all those tracks 
I think a lot of people got it after that. Have you ever heard, you know, because of the Beatles rock band, the people have access to the individual tracks. And so you can pull out Paul's bass, you can pull out Ringo's drums and just hear them individually. And it's a fat, it's an incredible gift to fans. And I know that they're like Beatles fan sites where they just post the wave file yeah. of something that's pulled off the rock band. It's fascinating just to hear how the pieces fit together. I'm not a musician, so I don't understand this stuff, <laughs> except that I find it interesting to hear how the individual pieces fit. Side two. Side two is good as side one? <laughs> no. <laughs> what are the standouts here on side two for you? Tell me. I mean, we'll talk about yesterday in a minute. Yeah. We're into a stretch. You like me too much. Tell me what you see. And then, of course, I've just seen the face. is magnificent. But are these minors? It's Only Love, which is a song that John himself called embarrassing. Are these, are these important songs? Are these songs that you stay with when you listen through to the record? I think, well, I think the important ones on side two are I've Just Seen a Face and Yesterday. I'm also really fond of You Like Me Too Much. Um, Tell me. I think that's just a, I just like that the phrasing. Sentiment. Yeah. Yeah. Like this, I remember there was a friend of mine um, named Joanna and what, like one time there was a photo of that, of us at, at something together and she used that li- one of those that line as the yeah. the caption I was like yeah that's really sweet <laughs> it's just like it's a really sweet song yeah and this is still a period of their career where they wrote really sweet songs yeah and it's and I think a lot of people write off the sweetness of the early Beatles stuff as naive hmm. and I don't like that because one of the things I love about the Beatles is how aspirational their music was and how just a lot of this stuff the sentiment is just sort of love it's like nice love songs yeah or like nice expressions of I'm trying to avoid using the word purity because I don't like purity okay as a concept but um, it it is that sort of yeah it's just there's, there's no cynicism or anything Involved. Well, I think that's one of the reasons, you know, when I was reading uh, this interview with John where he talks about um, uh, It's Only Love, it's the the undiluted purity of it that he actually seems to not like. That it's so earnest and so kind of open hearted. There's no. Well, fuck you, John. That's what I I like about it. I know, I know. But But. I feel like John, looking back on this record and talking about that kind of songwriting, he doesn't. He feels it, it almost feels like he's associating that with a kind of in, inauthenticity. And I think what you're saying is that with the Beatles at their best, it feels authentic. The sweetness and the earnestness is compelling because they, the lyrics are beautifully wrought and it's coupled with musicianship at such an incredibly high level. And it's sincere. Yeah. I, and I, you know, and if every song on the record was, was that 
emotion. Yeah. Then yeah, that would that would feel a bit contrived. But it's not. This is also the album that's got help and you're gonna lose that girl right. ticket to ride and you're gonna hide your love away yeah. yesterday on it. So. Yeah, yeah. I wanna skip ahead to I've just seen a face, because I listened to that again this morning as I was walking to see you, and that is just such an incredibly great song. It feels like a song where if you don't play guitar, you wish you could play guitar yeah. so you could play that song. It's just amazing. I've just seen a face, I can't forget the time or place where we just met. She's just the girl for me, and I want all the world to see we've met. Mm-hmm. Had it been another day, I might have looked the other way, and I'd have never been aware. But as it is, I'll dream of her tonight. Falling, yes, I'm falling. She keeps calling me back again. To me, that's like, that's Paul at his best. It's just so propulsive and delicious. And it seems to, you know, we haven't talked so much about Paul. Talk about Paul in this band and what Paul McCartney meant to you then and means to you now, because I know he's really important to you. Paul McCartney, for me, the thing it kind of boils down to for me overall, and especially where he's at now and the position that he's kind of taken. He's wants to make the most number of people happy yeah. at any given time in any given situation that he's in or has put himself in. Yeah. And he's the only one of them you've seen play live, That's right? right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So when he goes out and does a show these days, he'll do a three-hour show and it's mostly Beatles songs because he knows... That's what they want to hear. This is the closest yeah. thing any of these people will get to seeing the Beatles. So he's not going to go out there and play just songs from the last... Flaming Pie. Yeah. <laughs> I would quite happily go and see a Paul McCartney uh, gig where yeah. he played nothing before Ram. Yeah, I, I hear you. Could, that would be an amazing show. Yeah. You know I love Ram. We've talked about this. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, he knows that what's going to make the most people happy and is going to pro- pro- provide the best emotional experience yeah. for the people who have come to see him is to play... A bunch of Beatles songs. And is that rock and roll? Is that a rock and roll attitude? Or I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Great answer. Great answer. I am. There's so much bullshit wrapped up in like what is or isn't rock and roll. Yeah. That gets in the way of just like enjoying things and being happy or making people happy. That I am so fed up with. It's yeah. Like there's a whole. And I think it comes back to, like, people start rock bands when they're teenagers and have a teenage attitude about things, and people fall in love with bands when they're teenagers and have a teenage attitude about things. Right. And then that bleeds through, and there's, like, you know, rock critics in the um, early 60s who are still writing with those same teenage attitudes about what it isn't or isn't appropriate for, like, a professional musician to do, or whether someone's... The ones that always shit me are like, oh, he looks, he looks like he's having too much fun up there. Or like, he, oh, he just, he clearly like wants people to like him. Like, oh, how, how dare, how dare he? he? Yeah. And McCartney's always been someone, he's not, he's doing it for himself, but he's not just doing it for himself. And I can't imagine McCartney, if someone said to McCartney like, okay, um, you're never going to be able to stage another concert um, or release another record, he would stop making records. Huh. Because I think he makes music for people to listen to it. Yeah. And for yeah. people to be entertained by it. And if people weren't entertained, 
buy his music, he would not yeah. release it. This sounds very, all of this sounds very admiring to me. This sounds to me like, like the, to me, like what I'm hearing from you is that that is the most admirable quality in a musician is the desire to bring joy and entertain. I think it is. I don't think it's the only quality necessary to be yeah. a great musician. And there's, you know, the, we can all think of stacks of people who try to do that and fail catastrophically because what they make is like vacuously um, empty music yeah. that's just imitative of other stuff that's already been popular. But I think it's a spectrum. There's a spectrum between how much you're doing it to entertain an audience and how much you're doing it to work out your own bullshit. Yeah. And I prefer people who are a little further down the pleasing the right. audience. So cynicism about Paul McCartney is not going to play with you. You are If you want to offer some up for I me to... I don't have any. Know. I don't have any. I never had a Paul problem. Uh, but I do see that particularly... You know, when I was coming of age, there were you, it was not cool to like Paul. It was only cool to like John, yeah. and to be caught up in the sort of angst and the artsiness and the pretentiousness and the the uh, even the fact that he lacerated his former partner. You know, those were all cool things to think, and just to be an open-hearted, earnest entertainer who wants to be that was the uh, that was not punk. That was not a nice. That was yeah. you know, and so there was a good long time when Paul felt very old-fashioned, like music hall-ish, yeah. you know? And, and yet, and yet, you hear the songs and you just cannot argue with what, circling back to I've Just Seen a Face, you cannot argue with the joy in that song. It's deep inside too, and it just lights you up. You can't get enough of it. We wish it were twice as long. Yeah, it's so thrilling. Yeah. And it's short. As you said, like most of the songs on this record are short. I can't, I don't think there's, there's I'm pretty sure there's nothing approaching four minutes. No, there can't be. Um, I wouldn't think so. Yeah, and some of them are like really short, like barely two minutes. Yeah, yeah. And it's great because like none of them need to be any no, that's right. longer than that. No, that's what, what was it? Abraham Lincoln said a dog's legs should be long enough to reach the ground. Yesterday, all my troubles seemed so far away. Now it looks as though they're here to stay Oh, I believe in yesterday Suddenly I'm not half the man I used to be There's a shadow hanging over me Oh, yesterday came suddenly Well, here we are at the biggest song of all time, Yesterday. Uh, I don't know exactly what we can add to the dialogue about yesterday that hasn't already been said. What do you? Th is this a song that you still like listening to? Um, I don't listen to it that often. I, I do, I've definitely it's been overexposed to me yeah. as much as it has been to anyone. But I think this is the only good recording of it. Oh yeah, I that agree. has ever been made. Made. You there, think everyone else is somehow sopped it up somehow. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a real secret to Paul McCartney's delivery in this period. And it's true, I think, of a lot of his performances on some of these songs that could be really overwrought or melodramatic. And it's he just doesn't give you anything out of the vocal performance. Mm. It's just... He just sings the melody. Yeah. Really straight, really without any affectation it's got a really sad lyric 
and he knows it and he just yeah. lets the lyric do the work and he just concentrates on singing the melody really well and it's a great melody and lets the lyric and the string section give you the yeah emotion. i agree with you it's um i was struck again listening to it how restrained it is it's not a big broad tom jones theatrical kind of performance of what could potentially be very big broad and tom jonesy and it's very quiet and thoughtful and it only opens up in certain places he only opens up you know, you feel him opening his mouth to project more, but otherwise it's almost murmured and quiet and shared like a whispered telephone conversation. Um, and when we think of the song yesterday, I think we think of something kind of towering, but yeah. it is a remarkably introspective little song. The other thing that struck me listening to it is I can't tell what happened. It's almost impossible to tell what transpired that the singer is reflecting upon. Like I said something wrong. That's, we don't know much more. And, uh, and maybe that's why it's such an effective piece of art is that it leaves you to fill in so many blanks. Yeah, because it doesn't give you nothing. It's like she's someone, like a woman's left him yeah. in one form or another. Like she's, she could be dead or she could have, you know, walked down on him. Yeah. Like you don't know. And then I said something wrong. So he's at fault too. Yeah. Everything's used to seem easy, and now everything's hard and complicated. Yeah. So there's there's something to grasp onto there. It's not just like I am sad. Yeah. I used to be happy. Now I am sad. I am sad. Right. It's there's enough there for you to for it to trigger something. Yeah. Like because there's always you know oh if I, if I said the wrong thing or like I'm never gonna see him again. I wish I'd said this or yeah. like. Um, you know, oh, yeah, I used to think, like, things would be happy forever and now everything's fucked. Yeah. So, it's, I think it's a great example of a lyric where it's just, like, a couple of dots. Yeah. And then everything else is open. But why is it the biggest song of all time? Why is it the biggest song of all time? I think a lot of it's that. Like, no one... Is it? There's no one who can't relate to it. Yeah. The language is simple enough that it's global. Yeah. Very easily, there's no proper nouns. Yeah. It's a melody that everyone can sing. Like, it's not... The range isn't, like, gigantic or anything. Um, It's very simple to play. Hmm. And it came along at a time when this is not what people were expecting out of the Beatles. A solo acoustic guitar ballad with a string section. So it really stood out on this record... And it's a you know easy song for someone to play at a coffee shop or yeah a, sure or a party and and sort of spread like yeah, that yeah. And here we are at the last track, Dizzy Miss Lizzie. It's another one of those great twist and shout style John Lennon vocal workouts. Yeah. Uh, and so as they often do on these records, they end with a cover and they end in a spirit of celebration and and rock and roll anarchy. Yeah, it's funny. This is almost 
a song that doesn't feel like it belongs on the record to me. Yeah. It's the it's one of the few times they looked back. Yeah. It does feel it's, like Yeah, it's Cavern Club, right? Isn't yeah. that sort of the feel of it? And it's almost like they've gone they've got this record and they're like this is really this is different. Maybe we should just like put one like rock, yeah. rocker at the yeah. end just as a insurance policy. Yeah. Uh, so when you so when was the last time you listened to this record straight through the way we just talked it straight through? About a week and a half ago. No kidding. Knowing yeah. you were going to do it today. Knowing I was going to do. Yeah. I mean, I I generally I I quite often listen to the first like eight tracks. Yeah. Through like side A basically um, uh-huh. s- straight through. It's n- it's not that common that I will play the entire record straight through. Yeah. I mean, sometimes like at a dinner party or something, but to actually like consciously listen to it all the way through attentively. Yeah. Attentively. Same thing. One of those words as well. Yeah, fine. that's fine. It's um, like exploitative versus exploitive. Yeah. It's kind of the same thing. Acclimate. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a record that I used to very often find myself not intending to listen to all the way. The same way that if... I would ever stumble across LA Confidential. Oh yeah, you got to watch the whole thing. I'm the same yeah. way with all the presidents, man. Yeah. Anywhere I come in, I got to see the whole thing. Bad News Bears. Yeah. <laughs> Not the Christopher Walken version. Oh, what? No, 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 no. The, the, the Walter, Walter Matthau. Matthau. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, but if I ever like, if any of these songs ever came across shuffle on my iPod back in the day, yeah, it would be like. Oh, Maybe, oh yeah, Maybe I just listen to you go hide your love away as well. Right. Or maybe I'll listen to I need uh-huh. as well. And I'll just listen to another girl as well. Yeah. So as you often ask your guests, when you when you listen to this record today, what does it mean to you? It means all the things that it meant to me when I was uh, 11, 12 year old. Yeah. And a lot more because now my relationship with the band is so much deeper and longer lasting. It's one of the longest relationships I've had. Yeah. With any entity or or person is with the music of the Beatles. All these songs have meant a lot more to me in my life, no pun intended, because I've obviously a much more mature human being who has had experiences that a lot of these songs would be relevant to. Yeah. And also understanding the Beatles as people a lot more now. And I listen to this record and think about them playing these songs when they were younger than I am now. Um, is something. Yeah. Well, this was, I, I'm going to close this out with a couple of questions about the podcast, but uh, I did read once that people's musical taste is pretty much encoded around the time that they're somewhere 15, 16, 17, 18, and that by the time people are 33, they no longer want to listen to new music, which I find mind blowing because I'm well past that and I always want to hear new music. Do you think that your musical taste was similarly encoded? At that age, at the age, and and have you gotten outside that that fifteen years of time when you were still wanting to hear new music? I think I I've made a conscious effort not to sort of calcify like that. Yeah, and I think a big part of it is that up until I was like eighteen, I didn't listen to anything aside from some country stuff that was recorded like post Sex Pistols. Wow! So there was a whole universe of time of music that I hadn't exposed myself to that I subsequently got really into, you know, like Talking Heads, um, you know, yeah. like um, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, sure. like PJ Harvey, 
like any like any number of stuff that's more more recent than that. Yeah. Um, like you know, crowded house, etc., etc., right. etc. Cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, I think I, I'm still, I'm definitely still listening to a lot of new music, and falling in love with a lot of new music. And I would say, there's a record called Currents, a Tame Impala record. Yeah. And there are songs on that which I'm pretty sure they've they became important songs to me quite quickly, and have remained important songs to me now for a little over two years yeah and i feel fairly confident that that's an example of music that's going to stay with me and become as important as the stuff i was listening to when i was a teenager so that feels like a good sign that my brain isn't yeah locked up and i still have room for new music to mean that that's great because it's do you is music the most important thing to you i mean we know friends and health and sex and joy and stuff but is music well, at the top of that list music's been more important to me than most of those <laughs> things until like health was definitely way down the list <laughs> until uh, the start of this year but yeah. um yeah no mu- music pretty much consistently since i was 11 or 12 has been one of the most important things in my life great all right i want to ask you just a few quick you can edit this out if you want i want okay. to ask you just a few quick questions about the podcast Hit because me. because this is a milestone episode yeah i wanted to ask you what was the genesis of the podcast how did you start doing it well i made a documentary film that you referenced in the intro called jim lauderdale the king of broken hearts about five years ago five yeah. six years ago now and there was a long uh, licensing period uh, involved in that after yeah. we after I basically finished the film and I thought okay film's done just get all these contracts signed by the publishing companies and the record companies so I can use all the music and then it yeah. comes out and then that took over a year because I of negotiations and stuff yeah. and it was so frustrating because everyone who knew me knew I'd finished this film I told so many people I'd put stuff on the internet about that I'd finished the film and I couldn't show it to people I couldn't release it I couldn't sell it right and I really wanted something where I had complete control over the process and where I could turn something around really quickly and create a piece of work yeah. and get it out there. So a podcast was the perfect thing. And I you'd could, never done one before? No. Okay. I could record it on Tuesday, edit it on Wednesday, release it on yeah. Thursday. And the thing that I discovered while making this documentary is that I think most people think musicians just want to talk about themselves and I think most of the time that's not totally accurate. What they really want to talk to, what they really want to talk about is the music that they love. And so I'd done this documentary about Jim Lauderdale and it was great. Everyone loved doing the interviews because they all loved Jim's music. Yeah. So they all wanted to talk about, like Elvis Costello, I asked him one question and it was like half an hour great. of talking because he doesn't get to talk about this stuff that often. It's not like, so why did you change your name to Elvis? What's Allison about? Blah, yeah. blah, blah. So... I thought that was a good angle to take on a podcast. I'd get to talk to like people I admired and heroes yeah. of mine about something that we had in common a lot of the time. Yeah. Like I got to talk to Neil Finn about the Beatles, for example. And I thought that a potential side benefit of it was that I might become, I might develop relationships with some of the people I have on as guests because the function of doing the show is essentially like an in-depth conversation about something that's really important and if you're an artist of some kind that's something that's influential and motivating so like we had that 
first conversation yeah. when you were a guest on the show a couple of years ago and then we've subsequently become friends yeah it's be- great because of that because we had that foundation of a the kind of conversation you normally only have with someone when you've known them for a month. Right, right, totally. So that was why That's I started doing the show. Well, it, uh, do you want to... I, I, obviously, I'm your favorite, okay? But do you have other favorite <laughs> interviewees you want to people dive through the archives, particular ones that stick out to you? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of episodes. There's 250 yeah. episodes now. Yeah. So if I was telling someone to just pick through the archives... I mean, these are some of my favorites, but I'm thinking more like what would be good ones? What are like good examples of Yeah, what's a good the show? Pick a few that are that are standouts that you would point people toward. I think the first time Brian Koppelman was on yeah, the show, yeah. um, talking about Jason Isbell's Southeastern album, I think that's great. And I think that was great because Brian really made an effort to be a good guest. Yeah. Like he actually thought about what's the, what was the show about, what's the angle, and then like, serve that so that's a great one um there the first time i had ben montench from tom pen and the heartbreakers on the show yeah we did um beggar's banquet by the rolling stones and ben mont is like a total deep dive um stones nerd like is at least like probably even more than i am yeah and has like theories about all the songs and like really understands them and it's great because the angle from him is that it's not just he's someone who knows a lot about all this stuff. He's played with the Stones. Sure. He's a, 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 as part of as big a rock legend as they are. So, like, having his perspective on, on that is so interesting and he's so erudite. I loved, I'll just, just throw this out. I loved uh, Stephen Tobolowsky. That's a, that's a great on one. Ziggy Stardust. It's just incredible. Like, I just, I'd never heard him talk about music before. I didn't know that he had a podcast of his own. But uh, I had rarely heard anyone talk as passionately and thoughtfully about Bowie as he did. And I just, I absolutely love that episode. That was really, that's a really special one, actually. And I kind of just took a punt on that because. I'd never really heard him. I've, like, he's got a great podcast called The Tobolowsky Files, yeah. which I'd listened to a bunch of episodes of, but I'd never really heard him talk about music. But I found a contact email for him, and I thought, he's the kind of guy who will only do the show if he really has something to say. Yeah. So he will either say no, you know, and whatever. Right. Or he'll say yes, and it'll be amazing. Yeah. And he said yes, and he's like, I know exactly what record I want to talk about. I want to do Ziggy Stardust. This is like... Six months after Bowie died, I think. Yeah. And I, I went over to his house. Um, it's not far from where we're recording yeah. this, actually. Yeah. And he is like, I woke up at 3 a.m. I, I was think, thinking about what I was going to say. I couldn't sleep. I wrote, all the, I wrote all this stuff down. And it was amazing. It was, it was like some kind of, like, of some spiritual memoir of his relationship with Bowie and that record and I was really moved like by being with him and hearing him say all that stuff so that's a really great because I feel like there's two types of episodes of this show one of like oh isn't that interesting which is like these amazing like int- facts about yeah. like why they why someone wrote this song or like the making of a particular album or like little tidbits and like trivia and that can be really fascinating and then the other version of it is like oh man this this record is like everything to me. Yeah. Which is like something when it's really personal and they have a really personal relationship, a deep relationship with the music and it means a lot to them in that way. 
and that's the Stephen Tobolowski yeah. Bowie episode is a is probably the apex of that. Yeah. Uh, who's your dream guest? Who can we reach out to? I've got two. Yeah. Do you want to say who they are? Sure. Okay. Elvis Costello. Great. And Bruce Springsteen. Phenomenal. Well, I mean, they both have things to promote. So that's true. <laughs> and what better what better, better venue? way? What better way? But, well, yeah. Uh, Jeremy Dillon, thank you for 250 episodes of this magnificent podcast. And thank you for talking to us about your favorite album. Jeff, it's been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> Thanks for hosting me here in your Los Angeles home. Thanks for being a part of several. I think you, you're at least equal most uh, appearances on this show of any of the guests. And um, if I'm grateful for this show for nothing else, it's, it's getting to know you through doing it. Same here. Walking over the city pride Streets are paved with heaven's pennies Gutters full of suicides Teddy Stedley fell from grace Somewhere near Arcadia Once she overheard a voice That you didn't hear on the radio Velvet clubs and country clubs Were never gonna hold her Ringing the necks of silly southern bells to score her Well that's it for another episode of my favorite album. Thanks for listening. I've been Jeremy Dillon. You can follow me at Mr. Jeremy Dillon. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com/ my favorite album. Subscribe on iTunes, and if you dig the show, please leave a review. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time.